Yo. Um. <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. Thanks, Wayne. Keeping it real over there. Um. Yeah, I want to do, um, offer another spirituality for the 21st century. I want to talk about the natural world. I'm going to call this nature mysticism. Don't be too freaked out by that phrase. I'll say what I mean in a, in a moment. Um, and, you know, I also want to do some updates about the community center, um, sort of what, what's going on around here, because I hear people chit-chatting about that. So I'm acknowledging, hey, that's on your mind, but I'm not going to do it right now. <laughs> I'll do it at the end, um, uh, sort of a, it, during our announcement time, because I'd like this to pr preserve this space for the, this conversation. Um, and I want to begin with the reading in here, because I would like it to shift our consciousness just a little bit. This is from Richard Lewis. So, in our grasshopper and salamander days, who among us didn't ask, why the grasshopper could jump so far, or why the salamander has black dots on its orange body. We trampled leaves with our feet just to hear what kind of sounds leaves made. We threw flat stones over the surface of streams to see how far the stones could skip. We listened to crickets cry in the night far beyond our grasp of what the darkness was. We slept only to wake with the strange sense of how we could be awake when we had only just been sleeping. In those days, we knew as much as we had to know in order to ask what we didn't know. In those days, we knew as much as we had to know in order to ask what we didn't know. Our ignorance wasn't just innocence, but the foundation from which we offered ourselves the daily surprise of discovering another question, another way to uncover something mysterious, something we hadn't understood yesterday. We lived by wonder, for by wondering, we were able to multiply a growing consciousness of just being alive. And I want to ask, what happened to that consciousness? Where did it go? Where did it go in, our, in the thing we call our life? So I want to do a kind of imagination exercise to even further shift our consciousness. So I want to invite you to close your eyes. And I want you to just feel into the space that we're in, that we're sharing here. Just relax. You don't, you don't have to do any kind of special meditation, breathing. Just be yourself. Just relaxing. And so we're like, okay, yeah, I'm here. I'm not somewhere else. I'm here and, um, in this part of the world with these people and at this time of year. And when you're feeling relaxed, I want to invite you back in time to your salamander and grasshopper days to a place, and I want to invite you to allow in your imagination 
the place to emerge where you felt this kind of connection that he's describing here, this childlike wonderment. Maybe it's a particular place in your backyard, or for me, it's a particular nook in a tree. Or if you lived in, this, in an urban environment, a particular tree on the sidewalk or in the park, a landscape, that's what I'm inviting you. I want you to just allow spontaneously this, a childlike landscape, your own childlike landscape, just to, to appear and try to be in that place. No need to judge what arises, just whatever comes up, just be in that place and try to feel the place in your own awareness that is curious. and open that doesn't know all that much. Yeah, and once you've just felt a little bit of that, then come on back to this room. Come on back to this talk, this chat. Now, just out of curiosity, um, I have one person at least raise their hand. Raise your hand if, if actually a place from childhood came up in your imagination. Okay, see, where did it go, <laughs> this childlike wonderment? Well, it didn't go very far. It's not even very far down in there. It's right there in your, in your psyches. It has no sense of time. Your own inner child, your own inner... Um, way of being in the world that has access to wonder and awe and just plain curiosity. You don't have to make it too sound like so special, you know. Um, wonderment is what you called it. Just, you know, curiosity. It's still there. It's still alive. It's part of your innate humanness, I would say. It's part of your innate humanness. And it's an essential ingredient in what I would call a healthy spirituality. And we do tend to lose it. And it tends to get sidelined and suppressed and ignored or driven out by the thing we call education in our culture. So I'm making a, I'm, I'd like to make a case today, and I'll just give you the straightforward way of putting it. A healthy spirituality for the 21st century has to maintain this thread. That's the case I'm trying to make has to maintain this thread. And I, in fact, I would say there has to be at least a healthy spirituality in the 21st century has to include some sort of nature-oriented or nature-based um, dynamic to it. We can no longer separate ourselves out from the thing we call nature or the real world and expect to feel connected and whole, um, not to mention have a, have a world that's thriving broader world that's, that's thriving. So um, I call this nature mysticism, but again, don't be too like freaked out by that term. I'm not trying to turn you into mystics. You, you, you can't turn yourself into one anyway. <laughs> okay? And actually, anyone who claims to be a mystic probably isn't. And those who are mystics would say, well, I'm certainly not a mystic. So there's that dilemma. And, um, and maybe without too much definition, I'll just let that hang out there. So I want to ask you another question. All right, so 
First was, you have access to your own childlike wonder. It's right there. It's right there. And don't forget, it can be a kind of uh, compass needle point in your own adult life right now. And I'm saying it might be an essential part of, of a healthy spirituality, an essential part. And here's another question I have for you. How many of you have ever had, um, in the natural world in some way, and it doesn't have to be in a super wild place, but in the natural world, some kind of feeling or experience that you might describe as spiritual, transcendent, connecting, union, awe, or even God out in sort of the natural world? Anyone had an experience like that? All right. So most of you. And if you didn't raise your hand, I bet if we chatted for like 45 minutes, uh, we could, you know, like archaeology, unearth something. And if I ask you this question, which I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, how many, how many have had this similar kind of experience in church? <laughs> yeah, so there's, then, then there's that problem. And I used to say, even when I was little, like, um, you know, that I felt what I would say is I felt at home outside, you know, and I felt totally awkward and um, ill at ease in the church cathedral building, you know, with its rules and uh, velvet-covered pew seats that were maroon, which is like, that's an odd color anyway to put in a church. And anyway... Um, so there's that, I think. And most people kind of have a feeling of that. I'm not saying you can't have a moment of transcendence in a church building. Sure, I mean, who's to say about this kind of thing? But most people have experiences like that just out there in the wild world, just being themselves. And they often come as a surprise. So, um, okay. So I want to um, give you a quotation here, and then I want to make a series of observations. So here's the quotation. This comes from Bill Plotkin, one of my teachers. He says, we are who we are in relation to everything else. Right? We are who we are in relation to everything else. Is that true, first of all? <laughs> that would be the first question. Is that true? We are who we are. Yeah, I think it is. In fact, we are, um, maybe as a fundamental definition, we're a kind of living relationship. I mean, even your own body, which is mostly self-contained right there, I can see them out there, human bodies, there they are, is a relationship unto itself, wouldn't you agree? I mean, you have bacteria in your body that aren't even a part of your you know, organism, although yet they're in there, and they live in relational dynamic with everything else in your body, correct? And you have hormones and chemicals and synapses and you know, atoms and particles and subatomic particles, you, you, you contain particles that pre-existed your existence. I know that's like a little bit hard to fathom. We just have to trust the scientist. Um, but that's weird, don't you think? That's weird. Well, because you are who you are in relationship to everything else. So you're in relationship to particles that pre-existed your present human earthly container. And not only that, everything about your body is in dynamic relationship with everything else in the so-called external world, correct? You're like taking things in, 
you're slightly annoyed at what I'm saying, you're thinking about other things, the light's coming in, we've got these lights, we have, you know, and your just consciousness can move all around, and all these things are influencing you whether you like it or not. You know, the temperature of the room, the time of year, the time the sun got up this morning, you know, and I don't know, but I, I, I'm just going to, this is, if I, um, I don't take many political stances, but one is we should end the, the time change business. Okay, it's just, it's just yeah. power to the people, you know, I'm always saying. So, yeah, so we are who we are in relationship to everything else. And now, and now what started off as a kind of, we might even call it religious or spiritual intuition that all great spiritualities share. They all share this, we are who we are in relationship to everything else, is now what we would call a scientific fact. We're in dynamic and often hidden relationship with everything else. So what's a healthy spirituality? It's a spirituality that's paying attention to the complex set of relationships. That's what it is. It's a relationship. Spirituality is a relationship. Spirituality for the 21st century is more conscious attention to the dynamic relationship of just being and being alive and all beings. And how far out do the ripples in the pond go? Well, pretty far out out to what we would call the abyss, the great emptiness, nada, nothing, the black hole, <laughs> you know, to use space terms. Isn't it weird that there are black holes that bend time? You say, ah, that's made up, you know. Yeah, it's made up. It's, it's made up to our, you know, tiny way of understanding the world. All right. We don't need to go into black holes. I just want you to feel into that. We are who we are in relation to everything else. And one reason why I wanted you to return to that childhood place is to feel your dynamic relationship. What was the world like? What came to my mind was a maple tree. I didn't know it was a maple tree. I know that now because I've just now thought of the leaves. I wasn't like, I'm going to go out to the maple tree. It didn't even have a name. It was just a tree. And when I lived in Virginia... And the cicadas are a big part of Virginia Appalachian life. And have you ever seen the exoskeleton of a, of a, of a cicada? I mean, they are so creepy. And, so, and I would climb the tree and I'd try to get close to them. And I hated them and I loved them. And I'm like, what is this alien? Like, really? But to feel that kind of aliveness, where did that come from? Like, what is that? That's, we are who we are in relationship to everything else. And I'm learning about my own beingness by being in relation with the dynamic realities of the exoskeleton of a creepy alien. I didn't even know it was a cicada. You know, no one told me these things. You didn't have to be told these things, really. I'm saying a healthy spirituality, in a way, is a return to this kind of consciousness, which is a kind of nature mysticism, I might add, a kind of like openness to the possibility that there's mystery in the world. That's a very simple way of describing mysticism. There's more to life than what I know, and what if I turned my attention toward this and tried to live in relationship with the world as the world is? Okay, so here's some observations. If we're going to talk about nature mysticism, now I'm gonna, I'll go, I was going to say I'll go quickly. I don't know what kind of pace I'll go. Time is an illusion, okay? Um. First of all, we are nature. I know, we ha I know that sounds obvious, but we have to remind ourselves because I think after really several centuries of, of 
Enlightenment-influenced thinking that divides the world up between subject-object, between human and nature. We just have to remind ourselves, we're nature. You know, I'm going to go outside to nature. You could just lay down and do nothing, and you're there, all right? You are nature, and you are who you are in relationship to everything else. So the dynamic relationship with nature maybe is the more interesting question there, but you are nature, and nature itself is a relationship. How could you really divide anything up and call it something without understanding the way in which it's connected to everything else? Like, um, this morning I woke up and the owl was calling in the moonlight. Well, it wasn't, actually, I don't know what the cycle of the moon is. That's just the way it felt. I think it's the reflection of the snow has this kind of, maybe the moon was out, I don't know. Now, what is that being? Well, that being is in dynamic relation with with the entire landscape and with that part of the world and, and also with me in some strange sense. So, Uh, We are nature, and nature is a relationship. So that's my first observation. Here's my second one. And this is a a metaphor in a way, but evolution is the universe breathing in and out. All right? It's the way things are. It's the way things are. And, And you are evolution. You are evolution. Now, we happen to be a particular human form of consciousness coming into being, but you're nothing other than the universe breathing in and out. Reality, nature, you're a part of it. You are the universe evolving itself, of which you have not that much say. (laughs) A little say, we could say, we think about human will and autonomy and freedom, but did you evolve the left ventricle of the heart. Is there a left ventricle? I just suddenly like, I think so, all right? I was like, whoa, I'm, I'm now into science. Time out. <laughs> Did you do that? We were like, man, I just, I really need a left ventricle and ugh, got one, you know? No, you're just, you are the universe just doing what it does. Nature doing what it does, evolving into the being and the creature that you're wearing. You're not that much different than your human ancestors from 200,000 years ago. Two million years ago, there are some differences. But 200,000 years ago, not that much difference. Your brain stem, your left ventricle, you know, you're just the universe breathing out and in and coming into being itself. And I think this is the kind of posture that's partly what's needed when I think about a spirituality for the 21st century. There's a kind of humility that 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 kind of awareness necessitates. We didn't invent ourselves, and we're in dynamic relationship with everything else. Okay. Here's another observation I'm making. This comes more from Taoism. And this is my general... If you're a Taoist, I'm sorry to be so uh, simple here. But I'd like to suggest something, that Taoism, in its most simple expression, is coming into alignment with, with the way things are, with nature. That's what Taoism is, coming into alignment with the way things are. And I'm saying, I think this is an important posture for a spirituality for the 21st century. So what do I mean by that? Coming into relationship with the way things are evolving and with the way nature does nature's thing. That's what I mean by alignment. Um, 
In other words, it's, here's a way of thinking about it. One of the things that came up in pre-talk was, you know, if you, if you go on a river walk in Chicago, and it is kind of stunning. How many have been walked along the river or even been in the river? Um, I mean, not that someone threw you in, but like on a, on a, on a vessel, um, and are kind of amazed by the buildings. I mean, you, you, yeah, you have to be. You're like, what is this? Holy crap. But then, like, what is it on? Like, it's on the shore of a lake that was here before any humans were on this continent. And it's on the shore of a river. Who invented the river? You know, and the river's just doing the river thing. Now, I understand we've messed with it, and it's flowing in an unusual direction and all this kind of stuff. But nevertheless, it's in, you, you can't even have a city that's not in dynamic relationship with the way the earth is and the shape of the earth and the way the earth does the earth's things. And Taoism simply is asking the question, how do we align with, the, with nature? That's what it's trying to ask. Can we build cultures, civilization, homes, farms, gardens that are more in line with the way nature expresses itself? Because the possibility of ignoring that is fairly great and also seems to come at a great cost. Have I made sense so far? So I'm just making some observations around we are who we are in relationship to everything else. Okay. Um, I want to say something about culture. What happens to a culture over time, a human culture, that has lost its, the feeling of and the experience of being in dynamic relationship with everything else or with what we would call the natural world? What happens to a culture? Well, you're looking at it. <laughs> um, in part, the culture that we live in is, is, has lost that thread, at least to a certain extent. And we can feel its loss as a kind of craving, as a kind of hunger. And like, um, how many of you have looked up from your phone after gone, gone down the rabbit hole and been like, what just happened to me? Has that experience ever happened to you? Well, you're lying. If, 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 or you're just very uh, um, special and you don't have a phone. <laughs> That would be amazing. But you go down the rabbit hole. And sometimes when, sometimes when I do that and I, um, and I come out of it, I, I, I wonder what happened to me. Like, what happened to me? Like, and culture is becoming more and more like that. It's becoming more myopic, more, um, more sameness, more, uh, what's the right word for it, um, homogenous in its experience of reality. Because reality is telling us, experience the world this way, through these forms, and through these groups, and through this device, and that device, and we're losing our, I think, our relationship with the broader environment. And none of us are that sophisticated and can, um, or can easily avoid that. That's what I would say. Um, Okay, what was my question? What happens to a culture? I'm just going to use uh, spiritual-ish words. What happens to our spirit and our soul when nature is an object for our consumption? What happens to us over time? Or um, 
What happens if, if our only relationship with nature is just in the field of uh, domination? You know, like as if we're going to win. I remember thinking that, I mean, no offense, but I remember having this feeling when we were talking about defeating COVID. Just thought, defeating COVID. Um, is that the way nature works? Now, I'm not, by the way, I'm not, you know, <laughs> okay, I'm not, not saying we shouldn't have any scientific inquiry into these kinds of things. Don't, but do you hear what I'm saying? Like, defeating a virus, you know. Nature does nature's thing. It's actually, if COVID um, is to do anything existentially, I think it's to shake us up. Like, you know nothing about the forest, is what it's saying. Really, you know nothing about the forest. It's a wild creature, you could say. So anyway, what happens to our consciousness and our, even our spirituality if we only think in terms of domination and winning and extracting? And, and you probably heard me harp on this before. That kind of consciousness brings forth the department of natural resources, which is the department meant to defend natural and wild places. And we still call it resources. It reveals the consciousness that created such a thing. And I'm, and I'm just asking... I'm, I'm actually, I'll make it as a statement. That's not the consciousness we, that's needed for the, for the 21st century. That's not the kind of spiritual consciousness that's needed for the 21st century. We have to shed that. We have to say it served us well enough, but now it's blinded us. It's blinded us. Okay. Now I want to say something about growing up. Right? And... I'm going to generalize some things here. And this, th most of what I'm about to say comes from, from Bill Plotkin, but I want you just to follow me very briefly. So uh, Bill Plotkin, he's one of my teachers, has this eight-fold, eight-stage model of human development that he would call a nature-based model. And you're all going to learn it in the next two minutes. <laughs> I'm kidding. I just want to highlight one, one piece of it. And... So one of the things that he says is interesting is the phase of early adolescence, right? The phase of early adolescence, you were there once. It's both a kind of like time period of life and also a kind of psycho-spiritual reality, early adolescence. I want to give you the primary, what he calls center of gravity with um, early adolescence. And you'll hear it right away. Here's the center of gravity, the center of concern for early adolescence. Peer group? Sex and society or culture. That's the center of gravity. Have you ever had a teenager? Peer group, sex, although we don't want to talk about it. Depends on your family home. Um, I remember like when I was 18, my dad was like, we need to have a talk. I was like, uh, is it about sex? He's like, uh, 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 yes. I was like, dad, we had sex education in the sixth grade. What are you possibly going to say about it now? And he didn't. We just, he just kept driving. Okay. Peer group, sex, and society. Where do I fit? And actually, these are the right and age-appropriate questions for early adolescence. Now, according to Bill Plotkin, we live in a state of arrested development where most people are still stuck in early adolescence. What group am I in? Where do I fit in? What are the right clothes? What are the right flags? What's the right slogan? That's the realm of peer group sex and society. Now, one of the interesting things that he claims is there is a profound and fundamental shift 
in, in the center of gravity that's available to all human beings, that helps move someone from that as the primary orientation to what we would call the larger mysteries of life. And most ancient cultures preserved rites and rituals to help people move that transition from this is the center of my world to the larger mysteries. And those were the rites of passage. All right, those are the rites of passage. And almost all of them, I'm saying almost because I could be, there could be some I don't know about, all the ones that I know about involve an intense and ongoing exposure to the natural world. So you think you know who you are? Sleep outside for a month. And you'll now be introduced to you are who you are in relationship to everything else. So you think it's about your group, but it's a passing moment. It's an important one. Actually, it's very important. Identity issues are very important for early adolescence. What group am I in? In fact, they have to find both authenticity and social acceptance. Do you know how hard that is? I'm just myself, and I hope I fit in. God, that's like a dilemma that is dangerous and powerful and intriguing and alluring. It just doesn't summarize the fullness of the human experience. So part of what happens in this shifting out of early adolescence used to require extended time periods in the natural world. In some ways, it's a returning to early childhood and a moving forward at the same time. So why am I saying that? Because it's possible to shift your awareness to the mysteries of nature, the mysteries of psyche, the mysteries of the world. And that is a kind of spirituality that's growing up, we could say. It's a little more oriented into the larger whole instead of the myopic group. Now, just to, you know, I don't want to keep reiterating this point because this is only just an aside in, in what I have to say today. But um, culture is set up right now to keep you locked in to whatever identity group you currently are a part of. All of the energy, stay a part of us. If you leave us, you're a heretic. It doesn't even matter what the group is. And that's fine. It's because most of culture is rooted in early adolescence. Just remind yourself, there is a larger world. There's a larger field of experience. There's a larger field of relationships that is much deeper than whatever the group norms are peddling at the moment. Have I made sense? Okay. Um, this came up in pre-talk, uh, and I asked someone the question, and they got it right. I'm going to take a little religious detour here for a second. Take a wild guess at the saint who is most written about. Maybe I even mentioned this now that I think about it. Um, other than, sort of like, say, Jesus. You, know, you can't have, like, Christian answer. It's always Jesus. The saint that's most written about in, 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 uh, in human history. Any guesses? Number one saint. Uh, I heard it. It's St. Francis, all right? St. Francis. Why? Well, I think in part because he's, like, ringing a bell that all of us can feel. And that bell has something to do with the nature of the deepest human life is a, is, um, should be involved in an ongoing conversation with the natural world. That's what St. Francis embodied and lived. He called the sun his brother and the moon his sister. The earth was the family of the divine, according 
to St. Francis. When I, when I took um, a foundations and spirituality class from the Dominican sisters in Grand Rapids, they called this kind of theology panentheism. Have you ever heard that phrase, panentheism? Pantheism is God is everything. Panentheism is God is in everything. And people like St. Francis were the ones that, who were ringing that bell and calling us back to that kind of dynamic relationship that messes with people's theology. That means when you cut down a tree, what are you doing? You're violating some dimension of the divine. So better do it consciously instead of unconsciously. Do you feel the power of that kind of possibility? And now we put little St. Francis in the, in the garden, you know, just chilling there so birds can poop on his head or whatever. But he's still a reminder. He's a reminder of a, of a different kind of expansion of what do we mean by spirituality? And even more than that, what do we mean by God? Where is God dwelling, we would ask. Okay, so um, I'm going to uh, make two points here, and then I'm going to read some John O'Donohue, speaking of the Irish. I'm a second generation. Wait, I forget how it works. My dad was born in Ireland. Does that make me second generation? All right, thanks. Basic math. Um, I'm going to read some John O'Donohue here in a second. So what am I trying to argue for? A healthy spirituality, in my view, just in my view, you can see if you agree, must have a deep, relational, and abiding experiential orientation to the natural world. That's my sentence. <laughs> a healthy spirituality for the 21st century must have a deep, relational, abiding experiential orientation to the natural world. Not just head knowledge. Head knowledge is very important. That's why I wanted to call this nature mysticism. Mysticism is an experience. Have you experienced this? Much less thought about it. We need science. We need philosophy. But we need experience. Even in the most simple sense, you cannot protect something like the environment that you're not in love with. You won't. You won't. You, you can post about it and say, save the whales or whatever. Have you ever seen a whale? <laughs> okay. Have you ever gotten in the water with a whale? <laughs> I haven't, actually. But I remember being so close, I could, you know, put my hand in the water in Alaska. This is profound stuff. See, that kind of experiential dynamic is a lot different than thinking good thoughts about them, you know, or seeing a post on Facebook or something. So, okay. Healthy spirituality must have a deep, relational, abiding, experiential orientation to the natural world. You can see, see what you think of that. That's all I'm saying. See what you think about it. Here's another way of putting it. Um, we come to know ourselves within the interwoven fabric of the planet. That's how we come to know ourselves. Like, who am I? This great, like, existential question, at least in part, we come to answer that by coming to understand that we're within a relational and dynamic fabric called the planet. It's not the I, like we sometimes think about it. That's partly what I mean by nature mysticism. Now, in case you're a materialist, meaning, all right, I hear what you're saying about spiritual or nature mysticism or St. Francis's experience of the divine and all things, but I'm a little more materialist, I'm more pragmatic here. So here's what I would say along the same lines, if you're a materialist in ideology. Um, that is it possible 
to not only be informed about the natural world, but to experience a kind of oneness of which science now speaks. In other words, what's the link between what science is now saying, that it's all an interconnected web of particles and energies and atoms and so forth and so on, and a deeper and abiding experiential taste of that? How do we cross that bridge? Because just telling people that in their heads doesn't seem to be affecting much in the way of action. Wouldn't you agree? You can think we're all connected. So the question for the materialist is, well, how do we come into a more experiential relationship with the material world? So it's a similar kind of question. And now I want to read some John O'Donohue and give you a practice. Okay, here's a little section on what he calls wildness. And this will be my final piece here. As humans, we need a forceful dialectic of physical, sensuous, elemental interaction with landscape. Like, Leslie, you mentioned that these... Um, uh, various immigrants came from lands. That was the word that you used. And I thought about this as like landscape. Like landscape affects consciousness. It really does. So he's saying, as humans, we need a forceful dialectic of physical, sensuous, elemental interaction with landscape. Go walk around in the woods, he's saying. Go walk in a park. Go walk on the freaking sidewalk. Go walk anywhere. Go walk on this carpet, but turn it into a dialogue of sorts. If you look at the wildlife about us, like rabbits and birds and foxes, there is a seamless kind of wildness in them. You can feel it. like It's a kind of unpredictable wildness. There is a sense of fluency with the place that they are in and the way they move in it. If I can summarize what I'm trying to say today is, has to do with this word fluency. A spirituality for the 21st century that is rooted in nature, I think, requires a fluency. How many of you ever tried to learn a different language? Did you suck at it? Yeah. Right now, you want to know my Hebrew skills? I can converse with about a one-and-a-half-year-old, you know? And I can ask where the bathroom is at the bar, you know? These <laughs> very important things. All right? But that's, that, I'm not fluent. I don't understand humor. I don't understand complex things. I don't understand nuance. You know? So for me to become fluent in Hebrew, that requires a long and ongoing relationship. I'm saying we have lost our fluency with the natural world. That's what I'm saying. And how to walk in it, how to be in it, how to love it, how to have it affect us. I mean, just even the idea, there, there are several new houses that are being built on my street. And, you know, okay, whatever. Like, if it was my house, I'd be like, this is the greatest thing ever. You know, it's so easy for me to say, hey, they cut down these trees. But fluency is what I'm asking. What about fluency here? What, how can we live with a kind of ongoing dialogue with the earth itself? Like, if you were to build a new house, what if you asked the ground, can I do it? And if so, where? And at what cost? This is how at least our ancestors learned to move in the world. So let me just read it again. 
There is a sense of fluency with, their pl- with the place they are in and the way they move on it, speaking of the wild ones. One of the reasons that the postmodern mind is so packed and tight is that we have lost touch with our wildness. One of the most natural ways of coming home to your wildness is to go out into a wild place. Visually, this is often evident in people's faces. Like I've, I've been, have lived a pretty privileged life when it comes to visiting wild places, and I still regularly do. And one of the things that I've been doing with my uh, kids is taking them to national parks. National park is its own experience. Like it is a wild place, but it's like a tourist place at the same time. And you can see it on people's faces. Like, what is this? Like, what is this world? Have you ever seen a, a bison that's larger than a car? You know, I mean, this is like, what? Like, what does that have to do with the latest iPhone? Nothing. It has nothing to do with it. And that kind of thing, that, that's returning. That's, that's returning to, I think, what's, what's needed. All right, I'm going to... I should finish what he has to say here. Visually, this is often evident in people's faces. Years ago, when people worked more on the land, they had a winnowed look on their faces, as if the land was shaping their faces, he's saying. Now there's a great homogenization of our appearance. Similarly, in the way people walked. Land people walked in a land kind of way. The spread of the land was on them, as we would say. I guess that's what they said in Ireland. The spread of the land is on him. It's a funny phrase to use, actually. <laughs> I'm going to start in using that. What do you think of so-and-so? Ah, the spread of the land is on them. <laughs> now, more and more, people walk in a corridor fashion, unlike the peasants who walk the land in their own way. I love the word peasant. Those who, are, those who use it in a derogatory manner are just uninformed, naive, and vulgar. (laughs) That's the word I wanted to close with. Thanks for listening.